This series is called the Book of Daniel, and I mean we're working through the Book of Daniel, but this is the story of the same God, of Daniel. This is about him. And these stories are so fantastic that we can get really sidetracked by the amazement of the story. But what I think we need most this morning, what I need most this morning, is fresh amazement at the same God who's still at work in my life. And when it's less amazing, sometimes it's harder to notice his amazing grace at work in our lives, right? When it's a little less fantastic, it's just kind of normal. We can tend to take it for granted. This morning is one of those amazing stories again. King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've been looking at the last few weeks, is going to give a State of the Union address. Article 2 of the Constitution of the United States says that from time to time, the president shall give to Congress, no, I'm sorry, shall inform Congress as to the State of the Union. I want you to think about that constitutional language. (laughs) Like the fine print of the president's job is he's supposed to inform Congress about how everything is doing. Where? Everywhere. All of the union. Right? Anybody? Like, so, I I don't know about you, and and this is not a political statement, so if you want to email me about your political leanings, please just send that to uh, lbriley at uh, templefw.com. I just feel like the people who tend to sit in the Oval Office seem pretty disconnected from normal life. And then, for a State of the Union address, they are speaking to other disconnected people from normal life. So the fact that they're informing us about the State of the Union is just a little bit funny to me. But truly, Nebuchadnezzar is going to speak to the state of things, like of all of reality. So please grab your Bible if you would this morning. If you do not have one, there is one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, We say this every week. If you don't own a Bible, please let that be our gift to you today because we just believe in the power of this book. So much so that we have a creed we say together every week before we dive in. Uh, And so if that resonates with you and that's where you're at in your spiritual journey, then please join in that tradition with us as we hold up our Bibles and say this together. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you. Please turn to the book of Daniel, chapter number 4. Daniel, chapter 4. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 693. As you're turning to Daniel, chapter 4 or scrolling to Daniel chapter 4 on your device. Um, I will just say this. Between last Sunday and this morning, somewhere around 25 years has elapsed. And some of you are like, yes, that is the week I've had. <laughs> it, is, it has been 83 years. Like, you're like, yes, I feel like 25 years. But it may be as many as 30, depending on which smart person you uh, research as to how much time has passed between chapters 3 in chapter 4. So again, uh, if you grew up in Sunday school or grew up in church and you have this picture in your mind of Daniel the teenage boy, uh, that's chapter 1. Um, we, we know that at least three years probably passed between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then we said last week, like probably 16 or 17 years had passed 
so if he was like 35-ish last week, uh, we've come a long ways this week uh, to where another 25 years of his life have passed, maybe even as many as 30. So again, this notion of young Daniel. If we, I don't know that I pointed this out last week. I, I think I did. Um, the fact that Daniel wasn't mentioned in chapter 3. Like he was not there with the giant statue in the burning fiery furnace. Um, the text doesn't tell us where Daniel is. But this week is different in that Daniel didn't write this chapter. Very interesting. Jump into Daniel chapter 4 verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all the people's nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. This chapter of the Bible was written by a pagan Gentile king. That makes the real estate on which we are treading this morning very uncommon. (laughs) This is quite unique. Um, Luke's gospel and the book of Acts um, for sure are written by Luke. Maybe the book of Hebrews too. And he was a Gentile believer. Um, But here we have a king who is quite proud of himself. Pretty obsessed with himself. And he has written this chapter. He's speaking to the people's peace be multiplied to you. It seemed, verse 2, I love this language. We're going to read most of this chapter, chapter and circle back and park on a couple parts. And I'll just tell you this is one of the parking places. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the, the Most High God, look for that, uh, that verbiage, has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders, His kingdom, parenthesis, unlike my kingdom, <laughs> is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, his incredible palace, next to his incredible garden, one of the seven wonders of the world. So he says my house, like it's like a city. His house is a city within the city. And prospering in my palace, that word prospering is the picture of flourishing. It literally means to make green. I saw a dream that made me afraid. You ever had one of those? Maybe life's really stressful. Maybe there's some conflict in your life. Maybe you ate pizza with mushrooms on it. Whatever. Scary dream. He had a dream that made him afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So... I made a decree. Here we go again. Him and his decrees. I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon be sought, uh, rather be brought to me, before me, that they should make known to me the interpretation of the dream. This feels like very familiar territory. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in. This time I told them the dream. I'm trying to make it easier on them. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, Last time we had all these people in the room to interpret a dream, he was like, I'm not telling you what the dream was. You have to tell me the dream and the interpretation. They're like, we can't do that. So maybe he was in a better mood today. I don't know. But the same conclusion, they could not make known to me its interpretation. Verse 8, at last, Daniel. I have a question. Why not at first? 
Like, has he read the Bible? <laughs> like, do you remember what happened? I don't know about you, but sometimes we forget the lessons that our trials taught us. And we just make the same mistakes again. And then we're like, oh, that's right. I have a Savior. <laughs> Anyways, that's not what this morning's talk is about. That was just free. At last, Daniel came in before me. He was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and whom is the... But, so he's named after my God. But in this dude, in this guy named after my gods, is the spirit of the holy gods. Like he believes there's so many gods, he doesn't even know how to explain the thing he sees in Daniel. Verse 9, I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know... Can you imagine somebody saying this to you who doesn't believe in your God? Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. That's going to be another parking spot. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. Here's his weird dream. You ready? I saw and behold a tree was in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. How great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. That's pretty great. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. That's really, really tall. Its leaves were beautiful. Remember, he's flourishing, right, to make green. Its leaves were beautiful. It's fruit abundant. And it was food for all the beasts of the field, found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches. All the flesh was fed from it. Man, this is quite the happy tree. Bob Ross would be so proud of this tree. It's not a happy little tree. It's a happy great tree. I saw the visions of my head as I lay in bed. Behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree. What? It's such a beautiful tree. Why, why do we have to chop down the tree? Lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. The beasts flee from under it, the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, essentially to protect it. Amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Now we're talking about him. We just stopped talking about the tree. Did you notice the language changed? Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time, we believe this is seven years probably, let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. To what end? I'm glad you asked. This will be another parking space. To the end that the living may know that the most high God rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, El Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all of these wise men of my kingdom, yet again, part two, are not able to make known to me the interpretation. You're able, for the spirit of the holy gods 
is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, in case we forgot, was dismayed. That word in the Hebrew literally implies a a visible change of your face. Not like poochy lip, like terrified. Was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. And it's interpretation for your enemies. And then we'll skip down a couple of verses because he kind of repeats back to him everything he said. And then just says, this is about you. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree. You love, you love your decrees, king. This is a decree from the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. I've never seen an ox eat grass, but I would rather not do it. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the root of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. That's good news, right? The stump's still there. You're going to eventually have a chance to grow again. That's good news. From the time that you know that heaven rules. Verse 27 is going to become a parking spot in a minute. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Speaking to the most powerful man in the world, he says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. That there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. Check this. At the end of 12 months, God gave him a year. God gave him a year to acknowledge he's the most high, not me. 12 months. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. You had 12 months to take some of the mys and the eyes out of your little sentence, king, and you doubled down on it. You can almost see him looking down, right, from the roof of his palace, going, I am awesome. All praise and glory be to this guy. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And P.S., you're departed from the kingdom. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. The seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The, the same repeated thing. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. If you've had a warning in your spirit from God, maybe for 12 months, I'm just telling you that word will be eventually fulfilled. God's not a jokester. 
He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound pleasant. And his nails were like bird's claws. Ew. At the end of the days. I, Mr. I'm Awesome, Nebuchadnezzar, instead of looking down at everything I built, I lifted up my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. Every time we look up, our reason will return to us. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. That little stump started to grow again. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom. Still more greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right. And his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able, able to humble. This incredible state of the union address given by King Nebuchadnezzar gives us several things that are incredibly counterintuitive to the world in which we live. So I want to give you some un-Babylonian observations from the chapter written by the pagan king. Here's the first observation. I want you to look back at verse number two. In a world full of autobiographies, God is in the business of writing testimonies. In a world full of autobiographies, God is writing testimonies. Nebuchadnezzar said, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. Has anybody in the house today? ever reached a moment where you said, I think God's done some stuff for me. It just seems good that we would tell somebody that. That's the power of a testimony. In a world where it's like, tell me what you've done lately. There's a remnant of people who are like, let me tell you what God's done lately. In a world full of people wanting to write their own story and become the influencer and get the check mark next to their name on social media and be the thing... God's busy writing testimonies from broken people who've seen nothing short of signs and wonders from the hand of a glorious God, and they just think they need to tell somebody. And that's actually how the truth of the glory of God passed from one generation to another to another. Before we had systematized this, before we had the completion of the scriptures, we had one generation declaring to another the glories of God. I just think it's appropriate if God's done something for us, we'd share that with somebody. Not the story of us, the story of God. Here's the second observation in in this incredible story. In a world of chaos, our God offers peace. 
in the language of, of verse number 9, he tells Daniel, I know that there's this spirit in you. And he doesn't know anything about the English language or about capital letters. And he doesn't know better that he should have just said capital spirit of the capital G singular God. He's just speaking the best he knows. All he knows is there's something different in this guy. Not there's something different about him. There's something different in him. And what he says is no mystery is too difficult for you. But that word difficult in the original language means to baffle or to rattle or to reduce to distress. Here's what he's saying. He's not saying there's anything mysterious that you find mysterious and and can't understand. He's just saying, I've watched mysteries confront you and not wreck you. Like the thing that he sees in Daniel is the thing that keeps me up at night. Doesn't control you. In a world full of chaos, we serve a God whose spirit is gifting us. Not we earn it and we do all the right things and get it. He's gifting us a peace that surpasses understanding. This is not what God did for Daniel or what God did for Nebuchadnezzar. This is what God does in all of our lives. Is he offers peace in the midst of chaos. And notice, he says this to Daniel before the mystery had been revealed to Daniel. So it's not rattling you even though you don't totally know what's up yet. That's a piece that surpasses understanding. Right? We together? It's not too difficult. I mean, it's difficult. It's just not too difficult for my God. You know what that's called? Peace. Here's the next thing I, I see in this state of the union of the uh, say the union address, and that is this: in a world of tolerance, God is lovingly confronting harmful things. Daniel is standing before a guy who, every time we've heard him speak, he threatened to kill somebody. <laughs> right? Like, go back and read. He's like, "I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to burn your house down." Like, okay, yeah. He, to this guy, who history tells us was a violent, gruesome man. Verse 27, Daniel says, break off your sins. And he doesn't say so ugly. Remember it says that Daniel's like face was contorted with anguish for this pagan king. He'd grown to have some level of fondness and compassion for him. And he's like, I don't wish this on you. There's no hellfire and talking down and there's no bullhorn here. Turn or burn, Nebuchadnezzar. Like there's no... He compassionately says, I think you should submit to God. Like your sinful rebellion against against God is not going to end well for you. And the reason I think that's so important is 
just like Babylon, we live in a moment that says the only way you can love me is to affirm the harmful things I'm doing. And, and we would say, no, no, no. We believe that truth is in the center of love. Truth in love. Right? So if we're going to give out the love M&M, it's a peanut M&M. There's something inside there. Truth. And if truth isn't there, it's hollow. So I am not loving you when I affirm the things that are most harmful to you. Daniel did not just give the king the information he asked for. He gave compassionate confrontation. He gave him counsel. I think that is way too lacking in relationships today. I think that's way too lacking in homes today. We see a generation of parents who so desperately don't want to offend their kids or have them not be their buddies. And so we don't confront harmful things when the reality is they don't know better. They need leadership. And so the most loving thing we can do is kindly and graciously say, that's going to hurt you. Don't do that. But I want to. That's because you're dumb. And the reason that we know you're dumb is because we're dumb. True friendship is marked by loving honesty. There's a buddy of mine who, um, and his name's Mark Neal. He, he preached here this summer. We do retreats for pastors together from time to time, including a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my brother Greg uh, came on that retreat. He's never come on one of those retreats before. He came with a pastor friend, and um, he went for a walk in the middle of one of our breaks. We were like, hey, go take this text with you, go do some homework, going to come back together and talk about it. It's kind of what we always do. But those of you who know my brother Greg know that he was like, I'm walking off the property line into the, na- like, I'm going to go where I'm not even supposed to go because he's Greg. And he walked right up on a cotton mouth that was, I mean, that sucker was like, had a personality type and like, it was huge. And he came straight back to the house And told everybody, hey, don't walk over by that pond because there's a cotton mouth over there. Here's a picture of it. Right? Like, that's what friendly people do. Right? So if I'm your friend and you're telling me things that are going to bite you, I lovingly go, hey, dude, there's poison in that. Right? Stay away from that pond. Because I'm not sucking that venom out. (laughs) Like, it's not happening. And it's so interesting to me. I I watch Christian friendships end. Not because somebody like Brimstone spoke over them. They lovingly confronted, hey, maybe this really harmful thing is something that we should work together to, like, stop. I can't believe you judged me. We're friends, dude. You're playing with a cotton mouth. It amazes me that people will leave a church because the church lovingly confronted sin. It amazes me that people will schedule an appointment with me and then get mad because I said something biblical about their sin. Like, what do you think I'm going to talk to you about? True, like, 
I constantly have people come in and go, I know you're not going to agree with this, but can I talk you into agreeing with me? And I'm like, nope, that's a cotton mouth. I've lost dear friends who I thought we were close enough to speak truth to each other. And they asked a question, and I answered. And they were like, that just feels judgy. I just think the body of Christ, again, I don't mean this like, Hateful, I'm all up in your business and judging your motives. I don't know your heart, whatever. But the people of God have grown radio silent when it comes to friends who are drifting towards harm. And Daniel stands before a guy who literally could like snap his finger and have him executed and goes, you should probably stop that. Right? The the reality is this whole thing we believe starts with a confrontation. Jesus didn't die because of our goodness. God did not spare his own son because we are broken in our sin. And he's offered a a way to have acceptance and life in him. And we are now confronted with a choice to accept his invitation or to reject it. We can't walk together towards truth apart from loving confrontation. Here's the next thing I see in this State of the Union address. And I hope this makes sense. In a world full of motivation, God is working transformation. Like not just inspiring, he wants to change our lives. This fascinating revelation, this fascinating interpretation, supernatural interpretation of the dream. And at the end of 12 months, verse 29, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, looking down, going, I'm the man. Is not this great Babylon, which I've built by my mighty power. What's incredible to me is every chapter of this story so far, Nebuchadnezzar has experienced profound revelation. And has even responded, well, he's been really motivated. He's even been challenged. He's been moved. He's been impressed. Do you realize it is possible to know a lot of things about the Word of God and be really moved by it and yet not be changed? It's possible to do every Bethmore Bible study there's ever been and just be a smarter person who's still stuck. Skip Heitzig said, We can be challenged and yet not changed. We can be moved and yet not motivated. We can be impressed and yet not pressed by the Holy Spirit to be transformed. And we just want to be clear. The reason we believe that this thing exists called ecclesia, called the church, and specifically this local church exists to guide people to life change in Jesus Christ. We are not putting on a weekly event. We are not trying to crank out songs. Our purpose is that we might look different tomorrow because we've encountered the person of Jesus than we looked like yesterday. Not perfectionism, not, oh yes, I have all of my act together now because I've been going to this church for six weeks. Listen, gross. Like, no. Because there's so much need for life change, (laughs) 
We're going to continue taking the next step on that journey together. That's why we exist. That's why every week we ask you to out loud pray the prayer. Change me for your glory. Because I, I can't bring you glory if you're not conforming me to the image of your son. And for my joy, my life will also be less of a shipwreck if you will change me. It's possible to be inspired and not transformed. And the ministry of the Spirit of God at work among the people of God is that he would set us free. That he would transform us by his power. And we're in a moment right now where people just want to be encouraged and motivated. i got to speed up. I'm going too slow. Next. In a world... I always love when one person says that. And everybody else is like, smack him. I have lunch plans. <laughs> In a world full of empires, God is building a kingdom. In a world full of little empires, God is building his kingdom. We come to the end of this incredible State of the Union address where he says, I lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, praised and honored him who lives forever. And the end of it says, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. I don't know what your real estate portfolio looks like, but it doesn't look like this guy's. Babylon at this point was Turkey, Syria, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, the whole way to the border of Iran, Babylon is actually Iraq today. It's quite the real estate portfolio. The reality is ours is not nearly as dramatic, but we're all building something. And that's not a bad thing. Because we bear the image of a creator God, we're all building a life. That's a healthy thing. We're building a family, building a business, building a career building a financial plan, building a reputation, building a relationship. We're all building something. That's not what's bad. The problem is Nebuchadnezzar is building something that does not submit to or align with a greater kingdom. It's just his little empire. It's a big one, but it's just a little empire. He's trying to build the same thing all of us try to build if we drift, and that is he's trying desperately to build heaven on earth. But here's what a kingdom perspective recognizes. The kingdom perspective recognizes that if I have anything good, it came from the king. A kingdom perspective recognizes that our God is the source of all good things. We don't look at our life and say, look what I have built. Look again back at verse 30. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty. That's a, that's a small little empire perspective. And a kingdom perspective says... Every good thing I have is, is a gift from God. He's literally the most interesting man in the world at this time. 
He's the most powerful man in the world. Historians say that on a list of the five most powerful humans who've ever lived on planet Earth, they will list King Nebuchadnezzar on that list. Powerful dude. And here's what he just did not understand. That the little brother of Jesus did. Every good gift. And every perfect gift has the same source. It's from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. If there's anything good in our life, it is a gift from a loving Heavenly Father. We bear no credit. But that's only part of a kingdom perspective. A kingdom perspective doesn't just see him as the source, but also as the sustainer. If those gifts will be in my life tomorrow, it will be because of him. If I will steward them well, it will be because of him. He's not just the source. He is the sustainer of all good things. Literally, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was powerful enough to make sure that the good life would last forever. Next thing you know, he's eating grass. Like in the field. I guess the way our culture is today, I need to clarify that that wasn't an edible. Um, a kingdom perspective has no... Come on, that's a little funny. A, a kingdom perspective makes no foolish assumptions that life is somehow indestructible. As a matter of fact, I kind of think a gift from the pandemic was we recognized how fragile this whole thing is. Because in, in moments of tremendous confidence, I've watched people that I love hear the words, you have cancer. You've heard this, that the, the builders of the Titanic boasted not even God could sink this ship. You know what God used? Frozen water. I read a story recently of, this is supposed to be a true story. You can snopes this or whatever. There's apparently a Civil War general who very braggadociously said he'd never lost a battle. Historians say he was correct. He actually had never lost a battle. Do you know what he died from? A tick bite. This whole thing is quite fragile. There is only one source and one sustainer. We actually aren't that big a deal. And literally, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, this is the original deception. You'll be like God, and you'll never die. Really isn't new. Moving on quickly. In a world full of leaders, our God is the true king. In a world full of leaders, our God is the true king. I love that he recognizes the king of heaven. I praise, verse 37, and extol and honor the king. Essentially, what he didn't know to say, but he's saying in his own words, is all hail King Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's what the king is saying. The phrase, the most high is used four times in this text, and I love it because it's being said by a guy who thinks he's pretty high up there. But then there's the most high. 
verse 17. He tells us, well, what was the point of all this dream? That the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. I've got to speed up for a minute, so I'm going to talk fast. If you'll please listen fast, because I want to get to our final point. This, that verse tells us a couple things about the true king. Number one, it means he's actually involved in human affairs. Like, God's not responsible for the evil of the world, but somehow it submits to his authoritative sovereign governance. And it also is being spoken by a politician acknowledging that God rules in political affairs as well. Even when evil things happen, he's up to something. Because I don't believe a political leader has ever gotten their office, let alone taken a breath, apart from the authority of a sovereign God. And even in the horrible evil we've seen this weekend among political forces near this part of the country that this story is taking place, we believe that we still serve a God who sits on the throne. God has appointed every human government. And sometimes it has really looked like the lowliest of men. By the word, uh, that word lowliest, I, I, I read that in my English brain as like a humble thing. But that word really means like the lowest common denominator. People like Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> right? People like Pharaoh. People like Alexander the Great and Herod the Great. God does not approve of their actions, but he does control their appointment. Romans 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You mean all of them? I'm glad you asked. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Which means, and by the way, I I believe that we as a people, especially with the advancement of technology, we have a responsibility to govern and shepherd our voting process. But I actually believe that there's no such thing as a truly stolen election. Because that makes my God way too small. He does have a purpose and he does have a plan. We can't steal anything from him. He does have a purpose. And sometimes that purpose is really hard to see. Thank God his authority is not just in the seen realm. (laughs) Because verse 35 says he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. (laughs) Come on. Okay, we got to keep moving. Because here's the last point. This last point is essentially the summary of all the other points. This is the bow. That is in a world of pride. Our God is promoting humility. In a world that celebrates ego and fosters pride. Verse 37 says, He is able to humble. Give me just a couple more minutes and then I'll be done. We are living in the day and age of self-promotion, of self-love and self-esteem and self-help and self-reliance and self-centeredness. And the king is inviting us to something better. Something better than a life built on self. And he's warning us the dangers of following that trend and building a life on self. Proverbs 16, 18 said, Pride 
goes before destruction. And I think Nebuchadnezzar's like, man, I wish I'd have read that sooner. And a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Dr. Brian Loritz said, I want you to hear this with your hearts. I was going to put it on the screen and I didn't. Defeat is difficult. But success can be fatal. If our successes just breed and foster a greater dependence on self, that's more dangerous than struggling. That's more dangerous than defeat. C.S. Lewis talks about pride being a, he calls it a funny disease because those who suffer most from it never know it. But they make everyone around us sick with it. C.S. Lewis calls pride the chief cause of misery for every nation and every family since the beginning of time. Nebuchadnezzar is like, you should have seen my fingernails. Pride is a dangerous thing. James chapter 4 verse 6 says, he gives more grace. Oh, I wish I, I wasn't. If I am in a moment I'm in desperate for a need of more grace, I really need to finish the rest of this verse. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As I heard you singing this morning, Oh God, my God, I need you. That is the posture of a humble heart which means you're in the position to receive the very grace that you're saying you need. If I am living as though I got this, then I'm living as though I don't need grace. So why would I be mad that I'm not experiencing grace? Apparently you got this. And that is the the danger most religion puffs up, makes us more self-confidence. And the gospel says, we don't got this and we don't have to. The moment we acknowledge, maybe I'm not as awesome as I thought I was today, I'm now postured and positioned to receive grace. And that idea, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, is repeated three times throughout the scriptures. Proverbs chapter 3, 1 Peter 5. Skip Heitzig said it this way. If pride is our greatest enemy, then humility is our greatest friend. And sometimes the greatest suffering we face in life is not God mad at us and beating us up. Sometimes it might be Him correcting us, but sometimes it's just Him trying to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can finally enjoy the beginning of Him. The great irony of the upside-down kingdom of God is that Jesus Himself said, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6, after quoting from Proverbs 3, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. We see Nebuchadnezzar Lowering his eyes and looking down on everything that he thought was due to him. And then we see him lift his eyes in humility. And in that, 
he's actually restored. About a year ago, um, I had the chance to to meet a gentleman named Tom Mercer. Pastored the same church for 38 years in the desert. Just had major surgery for a brain tumor. 68 years old, he just retired uh, from that church because of his health issues. That church is a gigantic church, thousands of people. He's spoken at all the big, big conferences. He's traveled the world. He's written a bunch of books that have been published. And when I met him a year ago, what I was struck with was not how awesome he was. It was how humble and gracious he was. And a couple weeks later, I was at another conference. And I I struggle sharing this because I don't want this to come across accusatory or... Or, sh- or shaming at all, but I just met somebody else who's currently kind of a big deal in the church world. And uh, I was so struck by all the opposite things as I was by Tom Mercer. And what's interesting is that other guy, um, heartbreakingly, was just put on a leave of absence from his giant church for immoral indiscretions. And yet Tom Mercer was here ministering to our team and our staff with his wife this week in their late 60s. And it's just the thing that, it's not always that obvious, right? But it's one of those obvious moments where you're like, am I building a life about my greatness? Or am I trying to foster a legacy that says we serve a great and glorious God? And here's what's amazing about the concept of legacy in this text This is the last thing we know ever spoken about or by King Nebuchadnezzar. Literally, it's as though he says, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Curtain fall. (laughs) And I think he's happy with that. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to get to meet King Nebuchadnezzar. Because we serve a God who's graciously setting us free from building little empires to self. And he's fostering a healthy dependence on him. This morning, the the goal of, of our fellowship together this morning is not for you to walk out of here and go, I got this. It's not that you'd walk out of here and be defeated either. Don't go, don't go to that extreme. But it's that we would all walk out with humble posture saying, We serve a glorious God who's never been intimidated by a single crisis we've ever faced. He's never been stumped with a single addiction we've ever struggled with. He's never run away from a single fear that we've ever faced. And that humble posture positions us to receive more grace. This, this is our God. The same God that Nebuchadnezzar found himself humbled before. This morning the question is not whether or not we will be humbled before the presence of that God. Because there is coming a day when every knee will bow. There's coming a day where every tongue is going to confess, oh, he's Lord with a capital L. The question, though, is whether or not today we will begin that posture. (laughs) 
and just say, God, I humble myself because I need more grace today.